Well, it is Tuesday of Passion Week in Mark's Gospel. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem riding upon a donkey. On Monday, Jesus cursed a fig tree and enacted judgment on the temple. And now here on Tuesday, Jesus again comes to Jerusalem, but this time he is confronted by the chief priests, scribes, and elders. The charge against Jesus is that he has no jurisdiction in the temple. The Jewish authorities want to see some license and registration, please. They want to know, by what authority do you do these things? What follows in this brief uh, interchange is Jesus exposing the Jewish leadership for the frauds that they are. Jesus knows they are hypocrites, they are blind guides, they are seeking to murder him. And therefore, as the king who is wiser and greater, greater than Solomon, Jesus brings the proverb to pass that whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. The question that the Jews are using to trap Jesus, to discount his authority, is going to end up rolling back on them and actually discounting their authority. And this is the way that God works. What wicked men employ for the destruction of our Lord will become the instrument of their own destruction. This is the wisdom and justice of God. So let us watch as our master goes to work against the corruption in his house. Our text divides uh, neatly into four sections. Uh, In verses 27 to 28, the Jewish leaders ask Jesus by what authority he he does what he does. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus responds with a counter question. In verses 31 to 33a, the Jewish leaders deliberate and give no answer. And then in verse 33b, uh, Jesus likewise refuses to answer. So this passage is kind of a Q&A session between two adversaries. On one hand, we have Jesus, who is prophet, Messiah, populist, and God. And on the other hand, we have uh, the Jewish elite and aristocracy. And the scene that uh, plays out here in the public square is a scene that will be a replay just a few days later, but in private, when Jesus is secretly captured, tried, and condemned in the middle of the night. So this scene really anticipates the charges that will lead to his crucifixion. They want to know, who are you, and by what authority do you come? So let's uh, expound our text, starting in verses 27 and 28. It says, And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority to do do these things? This reference to uh, the chief priests, scribes, and elders should remind us of what Jesus predicted back in Mark 8.31, where it says this, He began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So this is the beginning of those uh, foretellings that Jesus gave his disciples earlier. Now, uh, who are these three groups of people? Well, the chief priests were the highest, uh, what we would call kind of ecclesiastical or church uh, authority. They're the highest ecclesiastical authority. The scribes were uh, what we would call the highest legal or law authority. They're, they're the lawyers. They're the experts in the law. And then the elders are the highest 
non-priestly authorities. So they're, they're kind of more like uh, civil leaders, if you could uh, use those categories for the Jews. Together, uh, what these groups compose is a high council uh, in Jerusalem, which is sometimes called the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. So these are the heads of really the most influential families and people in Jerusalem. Kind of a modern equivalent would be uh, getting together all three branches of Congress, you know, get the president, uh, get uh, uh, the Supreme Court, get Congress together, and then also add in all the CEOs of the big Christian publishing companies, add all the bishops, the, the denominational heads, and you gather them all together and have this really uh, important authoritative body. That's kind of like what this uh, body of people in Jerusalem are functioning like. So they're in the temple, They're likely in the outer court, and it is Jesus and his disciples on one side and this Jerusalem council on the other. And undoubtedly, uh, you know, Jesus is a popular guy. People know who these uh, men are. Uh, Undoubtedly, a large crowd is going to gather to see this showdown in the temple. So they ask Jesus, by what authority doest thou these things and who gave thee this authority to do these things? Now, I want you to think about how Jesus could have answered that question. You know who Jesus is. You know what he came to do. And this is the question that is posed to him. Why doesn't he just come out and answer them straight up? Jesus is God. He could have just said that right then and there. I'm God. I'm the creator. I made you. I am the word made flesh. I am that I am. But Jesus for some reason, chooses not to do this. He could have also said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, and if you look up my family lineage in your records, you'll see that I am the promised son of David who would be born in Bethlehem. I am the Messiah from the tribe of Judah, just like the scriptures foretold. I'm the one you've been waiting for. He could have also gone that route. But again, Jesus chooses not to say this either. Well, why is that? Well, think about why Jesus came in the first place. He came to offer his life as a sacrifice for sinners. Jesus says in John 10, 17 and 18, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. So in this great conflict between good and evil, between Jesus and Jerusalem, there is also this really deep irony that both sides want Jesus dead, just for very different reasons. Jesus wants to die to give his life to save the world. The chief priests want him dead because he is a threat to their power. But despite this kind of surface unity of purpose, uh, the time has not yet come for Jesus to offer up his life. Before he lays it down of his own accord, at his own will, on his own timetable, he comes to give these authorities one more chance to repent. And should they refuse, he is going to expose them for the wicked shepherds and frauds that they are. In a very real sense, this is how Jesus comes to judge. He's coming there to gather evidence, to hear testimony, to see as an, as, uh, an eyewitness himself to how the chief priests, scribes, and elders are doing. Are they obeying God's law? 
Are they doing justice and mercy? Are they teaching true doctrine? Jesus is kind of like uh, the owner of a company who dresses up as a customer to see how his supervisors and management are treating those they are called to serve. As God, Jesus is the owner of the temple. The temple is his house. As God, Jesus is the authority from which the chief priests, scribes, and elders derive their authority. And when we get to chapter 12, immediately following this scene, Jesus is going to give them the parable of the vineyard, or the parable of the vineyard owner, which essentially makes this same point. God is the owner of the vineyard, and these leaders are the wicked tenants who murder the owner's son. That's the story Jesus is going to give them immediately following this scene. So Jesus is kind of like, uh, it's like undercover boss, right? He goes to see how management is doing, and behold, uh, they're all going to get fired. So they want to know where Jesus' authority comes from. And Jesus answers with a counter question, verses 29 and 30. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. Now this is one of those great trick questions that really ought to make you marvel at Christ's wisdom. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.19, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. He beats them at their own game. And in a certain respect, by posing this particular counter question, Jesus is indirectly giving them the answer to theirs. Because where did Jesus' authority come from? Well, humanly speaking, who ordained Jesus to the ministry? It was John, right? Jesus' baptism by John at 30 years of age was his ordination ceremony, after which his public ministry began. Moreover, who was John the Baptist? He was the son of Zechariah the priest, which means John was of priestly lineage, just like the chief priests were. He was the miracle son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who was filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb, Luke 1.15. And so John had all the right credentials for a you know, lawfully ordained priest and prophet. He had the family lineage. You know, his, his father was one of the priests in the temple offering incense to God when an angel comes to him and tells him, you're going to have a son, right? And yet, despite these signs and wonders, which were publicly known, right? There were people standing outside. The Jews knew this. They knew John's lineage. They knew who he was. Despite all of this, it says in Luke 7.30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's will for them and chose not to be baptized. So apart from Jesus' divine authority as being the very person of the word, the eternal son of God, he also had this publicly known ordination from a publicly recognized prophet who was descended from the priestly line. And so in a certain sense, Jesus' counter question is a statement that his authority, at least humanly speaking, comes from John. And so whatever you think about John's authority is also what you should think about Christ's. If John's authority was from heaven, so also is Christ's. That is the trap Jesus has set for them. 
So how do these chief priests, scribes, and elders answer? Verses 31 to 33a. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did ye not believe him? But if we shall say of men, and then it actually just breaks off here in Mark's passage, and then we have the, the, uh, the narrator speaking. So, but if we shall say of men, dun, 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 and then narrator voice, they feared the people, for all men counted John, that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. So this Jerusalem council recognizes that if they say that John's authority was from heaven, they will condemn themselves as having rejected God's authority. They would have to admit they were wrong, which nobody ever wants to do, right? It's the last thing we ever want to do. And so they would like to say, this is what they want to say, they want to say that John's authority was from men. They want to discredit John. They would like to claim that John was a false prophet or some self-ordained rogue guy doing his own thing. They want to discredit his whole ministry. And this they would do, except that the masses believed John was a true prophet, and many, many had been baptized by him. So if they say John's authority was from men or was false, they would actually be endangering their own lives, and they know this. Uh, so in, in the parallel passage in Luke 20, verse 6, it says, uh, But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So that's the par- part that Mark just leaves to your imagination. If we say of men, dot, 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 in Luke it says, then all the people will stone us, okay? Because they would be uh, failing in their primary task, right? What is their job? It's to discern the will of God. It's to know who's a true authority and who is not. So Jesus has really cornered them. Either they acknowledge that John's authority and therefore also Jesus' authority are heavenly, or if they say it was for men, the people will stone them. And therefore, what do they decide to do? Well, they choose the best of their bad options, which is to plead ignorance. They tap out, they concede the question saying, uh, we cannot tell, right? Uh, There are many lessons here about human nature, right? What what do people do when they don't want to cop? They just say, "I I didn't know, right? They plead ignorance. Then in verse 33b, it says this, Jesus answering saith unto them, well, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus has just uh, publicly humiliated the highest authorities in Jerusalem. It's almost as if he's trying to get himself killed. They tried to double down on their rejection of Christ by questioning his authority and Jesus makes them pay. Now their authority is in question. It is this showdown specifically that precipitates and accelerates their desire to murder him. What do proud men fear the most? They fear losing their power. They fear losing their reputation, their authority, the basis of their pride. And with one question, Jesus has just threatened all of that. What was this council's whole job after all? It was to judge and discern the will of God. And if they cannot do that, they are showing themselves disqualified and unfit for office. The chief priests were in charge of maintaining proper and right worship at the temple. The scribes were in charge and expert in interpreting and applying the scriptures. And the elders were in charge of judging and enforcing those judgments, God's law. 
And so if these men, their best and brightest, are unable to discern that John was a true prophet as he was, well, they show themselves to be false judges who have no real interest in the truth. And so Jesus gives them just enough rope to hang themselves. All right, well, that is, that's our text. That's the exposition of our text. Let me uh, just make a couple applications now from it. Application number one. The longer you reject Christ's authority, the more miserable your life becomes. The longer you reject Christ's authority, the more miserable your life becomes. Take this Jerusalem council as a cautionary tale for what happens when you reject Christ's authority. These men were given countless opportunities to repent. They had heard John preach. They had heard Jesus teach. They were eyewitnesses of the invisible God coming in the flesh. And yet because they did not love the truth, they were blind to his arrival, so blind that they murdered him. For many people, the obstacle to salvation is not a lack of information. It is not a lack of knowledge that keeps them out of the kingdom. It is rather their own unwillingness to admit they are wrong that keeps them from heaven. Right? It's because men are stubborn. Women are stubborn. This is why it is true that hell is locked from the inside. Right? What are sinners doing? They are holding the door shut. They don't want to let the light in. The pride of man is what prevents him from being truly happy. Do you think the chief priests, scribes, and elders were joyful, contented men? Is anyone happy who has to constantly keep up appearances and justify themselves to themselves and spin lies and believe those lies to soothe their conscience? Right? No, no one likes living a lie. Living in sin is really miserable. And one of the first signs of God's grace in our lives is that we recognize just how miserable we are without God. This is also one of the ways you know you belong to God, right? You're a Christian, you sin, you sin, and you're like, why does my life suck? Well, God's trying to tell you something, man. That God lets you be miserable in your sin is love. Right? How, remember Romans 1. How does God judge people when they're totally ungrateful to him, when they've actually sh- shut themselves off to him? It says he just gives them what they want. Right? Hell is God saying, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. You don't want to be with me. Here you go. But repentance happens when you are willing to say, I am wrong, God is right. That's when we confess our sins and we kneel in that moment of silence, we should be thinking, where have I been wrong this week (laughs) or this morning? Uh, And where is God right? And I need to just say that. I was wrong. God, you are right. And then you go and make things right with whoever you wronged. This is what repentance is. This is what confession is. It is to say, I am not the highest authority around here Christ is, and I am going to just submit myself to whatever judgment he gives. Whatever Christ says goes. The Jerusalem authorities were unwilling to undergo a very temporary humiliation so that they might be eternally exalted with Christ. 
right? And this, is, this really is the offer to everyone. It's like you can either be humiliated and you know, suffer the, uh, the trials of being a Christian for a very short time, and then you get to live with Christ forever, or you get the opposite. You can have your reward here and then have punishment forever. That's the offer, and you can see what the Jerusalem authorities chose. When you refuse God's will for your salvation, the harder it gets to repent, and the more blind and miserable you become. And the person is self-deceived who thinks, I can sin now, and I'll repent later. Right? This is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, We then, as workers together with Christ, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You can receive God's grace, and it could be totally in vain. That's what church is. That's what the sacraments are. That's what prayer is. You can receive all of these graces from God and yet receive them in vain. This is the danger that Paul puts before them. So he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. He's quoting the Psalms. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see, it's very dangerous to presume upon the grace and patience of God because you don't know when your last day will be. You don't know when God is going to say to you, I require of you your soul. And therefore, Paul says, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, lest you become like Esau, of whom it says in Hebrews 12, 17, that when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Right? You can be born into a covenant home like Esau was. You can even be the firstborn. You could even really want the blessing. And yet, when Esau sought an opportunity to repent. It wasn't there. His repentance wasn't authentic. The blessing had already gone to Jacob. If you refuse to repent now, what makes you think you will choose any differently later? Esau rejected God's blessing. He sold it to Jacob. And later when he wanted that blessing, his repentance was not genuine, but rather it was a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And we know this because what was Esau's repentance? Well, it was trying to kill his brother. (laughs) That was the repentance that Esau had. This is also what the Sanhedrin are going to try to do to Christ, right? They are Esau killing the son of promise. So remember, sin is a liar. Sin is a deceiver. Sin is not your friend. Sin promises life, but always leads to death. And the longer that you persist in your sin and reject Christ's authority, uh, the more miserable you will become. So make confession. Come clean. Do not do as the scribes and Pharisees and reject God's will for your life. All right, that's application number one. Second point of application. If Christ is Lord, then his authority has no boundaries. And therefore, your submission to Christ must be absolute. The sin that many professing Christians commit is that of thinking they can pick and choose which areas of their life they will surrender to God 
and which areas will remain under uh, our own authority. Many Christians live as if Jesus can be Lord of certain parts of our life, you know, Sunday morning, but the rest of the week or the weekend belongs to me. And what is this but really the same sin as the Sanhedrin, right? They let Christ clear out some portion of the temple, but anything more, and they'll murder him. If you are a temple, and the Bible says you are, then where is Christ not allowed to go? If your life is a house, which rooms are off limits to Jesus? Is there a closet or an attic that is too messy to let him in? Is there a man cave where you keep your secret vices that no one knows about? I don't know what the female version of a man cave is, but you know what I'm talking about, right? We like to keep little portions of our life compartmentalized from God, but God will not have it. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of everything, and therefore your submission must be whole and entire. Whatever you have deemed off limits, whatever you are still holding on to as the authority, Jesus has come to take over. Why did Jesus suffer and die? Well, it's not because he wants 90% of you. God wants all of you. Why does he call us to repent of our sins? Because he wants you to actually be happy and to be at peace with him. The absolute authority of Jesus Christ is the greatest news in the world. It is the gospel. Because in Christ, perfect love and perfect goodness is married with perfect power. And that means God's authority in your life is always infallibly and unbreakably good for you. There is no place that if you let Christ into it, he will, not, he will make it better. Any place that you give Christ room and authority over, he will make better. It might be embarrassing to let him see what is inside of you, but remember, uh, he already knows. So drop the front. Stop lying. Don't double down like the Pharisees did. Open the door and let Christ in. Let him rule everywhere. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.